I'll move approval. that they've been getting uh, and are they meeting your needs for understanding at a governance level, you know, not at a management level or an executive level, but at a governance level, do the presentations and reports that you see meet your need uh, uh, to have a governance level understanding of the organization and its financial condition and for uh, and so that you can advise the board to make decisions on financial matters that it has to consider. Things like budgets, contracts, uh, strategic direction, the CEO evaluation. So I'd like to hear from the committee members on how you, how you feel about that. Also, if you have any requests for educational uh, topics to be covered during the year. Trustee Esteem. Uh, I am satisfied with the reports that we've gotten. I think uh, sometimes I do find myself wanting a little education. Um, <coughs> there are certain parts of the financial reports that, though we have the written report, still are a little kind of like reading Greek. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Yeah. Um, would you be able to enumerate what some of those are, or could you, between meetings, let me know and maybe let our CFO know? Uh, okay. And how do you feel about whether you're getting enough information to understand the financials well enough to make decisions that you're called upon to make and advise the board? I think the discussions are often quite helpful to, to fill in the gaps for me. Okay. Um, yeah, I think the discussions are often very helpful. Uh, our CFO and our chair have a lot of experience and you guys are pretty good at breaking stuff down. Okay. Um, any thoughts on uh, topics for us to cover during the course of the year? Let me get that to you between meetings as well. Okay. Uh, Trustee Splendorio, any thoughts? Yeah. yeah, thanks, Alan. So, I mean, there's a lot of information to digest. And I'll tell you, even though I, I, I think I'm pretty sophisticated with finances, um, you know, I'm always looking for a, uh, a dashboard to help me uh, muddle through some of the 
information. And, you know, Kim Miranda does a wonderful job of presenting a lot of information. Um, my struggle is that, you know, I come from a place where cash is king in the private sector. And it's not that that isn't important here. It's just apparently less important than, uh, than other, other metrics. And that's been, if you're looking for an educational opportunity, um, that might be the place where we understand what, you know, what, you know, I mean, Alan, you've mentioned a few things in terms of our uh, turn of our AR, things like that are important. I mean, I get all that, you know, I understand that. Um, uh, so maybe that might be helpful um, to learn a, a bit more about the metrics that drives the accounting department and, and in your entire organization, you know, what they seem to focus on is, is the greatest importance. And I can tell over the last couple of years that, um, you know, Kim Miranda and her department have um, focused on our, you know, our, our, our you know, our, essence, our line of credit. Uh, um, and, uh, and of course, our uh, EBITDA, which I, I'm, uh, which in, in, a funny thing is, I'm not so sure it really applies to us, EBITDA, because that's, you know, that's a, a more of a function of building value for an for a business. And we're not obviously going to sell our business to anybody anytime soon. Um, but, um, but I understand why that metric is there. Um, so and those are my thoughts. Um, and, 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 and yes, I guess if I were to give any comments is I do read everything before the meeting. And, um, and I think going over the PowerPoint presentation is probably the best use of our time. Uh, because that seems to be more condensed um, and and pointing out and, and having Kim point out where she sees um, it past performance is impacting future performance and where we and where she sees issues in the future. That's where I would like to see because I you know again I've, I've said this before, I, I want to be more strategic uh, with our board and knowing those sort of things. Um, and I know she's you know she has done that. But just really focus on those so we understand strategically well, how does the financing is affecting our organization. Okay. Um, so it sounds like your first comment was that you might feel it might be beneficial to see uh, a dashboard of the really, really the key metrics as kind of a cover sheet on the financials. Yep, that would be great. That would be great. And then, but then maybe there's a, then there's an opportunity to learn is why Kim and her department think that these are the key metrics. So, so we understand why she's you know, looking at those. Okay. Like I said, me, I'm looking, the first thing I look at is cash, <laughs> but, and that's sure that's the only, you know, that's not the only thing we should be looking at here. Okay. Any, um, uh, any educational agenda items you might want to see this year? Well, like I said, you know, a, a hospital finance is really, um, yeah. I, I think what I'm saying is, uh, you know, there's, I have this, I, you know, in my world, there, there is um, in development, there's, you know, regular oh, finance. There's regular finance. Call Gray. So there's regular finance, you know, the, the stuff that we're used to, you see Wall Street, then there's uh, <clears throat> municipal finance, which is, and then there's affordable housing finance, which is basically, you know, uh, out in the outside of the solar system. And I think in some respects, that, that's analogous here 
to where you have finance and then you have, um, you know, you have uh, uh, health system finance and then you have public health system finance. And, and that, that it is hard to bridge that gap unless you've been in it for a long time. Like, you, you know, you have Alan and, and obviously Kim and her team. Although I have to tell you, I haven't really been in public system finance. So some of, a lot of this has been new to me too. Um, and just one thing about EBITDA, EBITDA is really, uh, I think intended to show, to try to show operating cash flow kind of on an income statement basis, not to replace the cash flow statement, but, but to say, okay, based on our revenue and expenses, here's how much cash flow the organization should be throwing off. Okay. Um, with, with hospitals, accounts receivable are so critical that that, you know, your EBITDA can be okay, but you could be uh, walking toward the edge of a cliff depending on what's happening with your revenue cycle. So, but uh, it, I think at AHS, EBITDA and net income are fairly close together and they, they tend to run fairly parallel. As long as we don't have that big um, GASB adjustment for the non-cash retired, that can really make it different. Okay. Okay. Thanks for your feedback, and we'll 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 talk about a dashboard and the possibility of doing that. Any other comments, uh, Alan? Um, Chair. Chair, if I may, um, I I think our CFO does an amazing job with the um, bringing clarity in the financial statement and reporting. That's really great. I do feel that we are presented a lot of numbers, like we are so-and-so above in revenue and we haven't met our budget. And there's a story behind all of that. And sometimes I feel the kind of the wealth of uh, the, the understory that you have about, uh, you know, what, what concerns you and what, where you think. Those would be really good to have some of the, you know, much more um, nuance behind the number. You do, uh, again, your reports are great, and there's just so much wisdom that you have that you might, if you want to share some of that from your CFO perspective too, uh, as specifically, like I think I was thinking about things like, um, where do you think, you know, what's working well, um, where do you think, you know, to what extent are some of the biggest concerns that you have. We hear from you what the drivers for our revenue are, what the drivers for our growth are, but as you are kind of seeing the landscape or doing some of that with between the ELC to have those main risks, uh, you know, we've taken decisions sometimes uh, when when we were flush with money, and I've, I've heard some of those risks that you mentioned. This won't stay next year. We won't have this, you know, when we take those decisions. So really bringing those so that we could have. So risks and opportunities and any strategies you have to mitigate those risks come, you know, given the shifting landscape, those would be great. And so, um, again, I love to attend this meeting because it's so rich. So thank you for the discussions here and the report. Thank you. Any other comments? Okay, thanks for your feedback, folks, and we'll uh, do our best to try to incorporate what we can, uh, hopefully uh, all of your comments.
Uh, now we're going to go on to uh, item B2 on the agenda, the Chief Financial Officer's Report. So this is the uh, January financial report. And uh, I uh, typically started with the volume highlights and uh, right off the bat, what everyone should see is we were really busy. We had 10,119 patient days. Uh, that's a, a high point in a month for us. 8.1% of our budget. We have been running high all year, but uh, that's a particularly high number of days. Uh, our length of stay is at 6.6, .6, which is pretty much an all-time high. Interestingly enough, this month, uh, we had a high budget at 6.6. Uh, so we spread the budget based on the prior year. So January last year must have been really high, which drove up those uh, budget days um, in January. Looking down at the next section, um, you can see that we didn't have a very, a very favorable mix of services. Our ED visits were down. They were down 3.1%. Our trauma cases were down 11.6%. Our surgeries were down 5.8%. Um, further down at the skilled nursing there, some really nice changes. We had more discharges. We had a higher census. So um, COVID seems to be, be you know, settling down and we're actually able to um, get patients uh, through the skilled nursing facility. Our clinic visits are down 11%. A lot of that, some of that is the way that we counted our visits with vaccines, we had way more vaccines last year uh, with COVID. And the remaining reason for the negative variance is provider vacancies in primary care. Um, looking at physician work RVUs there, we're up 9.9%. That's really high. And what's driving that is those inpatient um, roundings that the physicians are charging. So the next slide talks about length of stay. So length of stay is something I'm very concerned about. Um, if you look at the last several months, we're trending the wrong way. Um, if I just make a very high level estimate, the days more than expected cost us about $4.1 million in this month. I have some good news here on John George, and John George has been going the opposite way. It's looking better, lower length of stay, uh, and the cost there was about uh, $1 million in uh, days over expected. So here's our financial statement for the month. Um, we have a net income of 8.3 million, which is 6.9 million better than budget. So a good month for us, driven primarily from um, supplemental funding. 
which is still including COVID relief money. So um, that is helping us with the additional length of stay and our throughput issues, which are partially caused by COVID. So uh, uh, it's great that the government has uh, recognized that and they're extending some of our relief funding. Year to date, we are missing budget by 4 million or 15.8%. This next slide was my graphic. Um, when we started the year, we knew that we put a lot of aggressive performance improvement into the uh, budget. We wanted to push ourselves. Um, we had made the assumption that COVID was going to calm down and that we would be able to uh, move in a lot of areas. And that has, has obviously not happened. Um, the biggest items that we had put in were care optimization, which is all about reducing length of stay, and registry utilization and rates. And of course, with the staffing shortages across the country, registry rates have skyrocketed. So we've not been able to achieve those. Um, our performance has jumped around. You can see that in the black line there. Um, in the month of January, we went ahead and booked one of our bridge plan items. That was the QIP supplemental funding for 24.9 million. And we got so much funding because the threshold um, was changed in the formula so that we could draw down the maximum amount regardless of our scores on quality. Um, I do have a dotted line there that brings us down to just below our budget and that's where our current projection is. So if I take our performance through January and I um, use the, for the projection I gave you all last month, we will end up just slightly below budget at the end of the year. Excuse me, Kim. Yep. Would you mind just talking about the, the thought process that went into the, the way that we chose to realize the supplemental funds? So, um, we knew that we were gonna receive these funds. So it was a matter of how do we want to book it? Do we wanna book it as soon as we find out about it? Do we wanna book it when we actually know the IGT amount? Do we wanna average it over the rest of the year? I mean, we had to make a decision about that. And since we knew the actual amount, we made the decision to go ahead and book it in January. And it was a joint decision with by our team. Can you also speak to the expectation for COVID funding? So um, the FMAP has been extended. So that's the, the, the higher matching percentage we get from the feds. And they're going to step that down all the way through the rest of the calendar year. So it goes, it's right, it's, um, I'm doing this from memory, I think it's 6.7. It might have to have 56.5. 65, 56.5. So 6.5% was the increase. And then they're going to step it down through the end of the calendar year. So we will see pickups in all of our supplementals that relate to Medi-Cal as a result, because we assumed that money would go away last September in our budget. So those are pickups on every supplemental. And then the QIP, this is a, they're changing the formula so that we don't have to earn all of our uh, our metrics to get our maximum funding. So that is not gonna, gonna continue. So I, I don't know if you have any any additional information on the QIP. Yes. 
QIP, it's a mitigation just for one year. Um, I would like to say, though, even with that mitigation strategy, AHS performed so well on meeting a lot of the required, and it overperformed on the elective that um, we still would have done well. So we certainly appreciated the mitigation strategy for this year. And uh, Tanz and I are partnering to come up with a way to graphically show that because it, it, there's a whole bunch of people doing a lot of work and effort, and we want to bring that, you know, to bubble up so you can all see all the improvement on those metrics. Is the federal matching percentage, is that same thing as Medi-Cal managed care rate range? No, rate range is funding that we get um, uh, based on the volume or the utilization through the health, through the uh, managed Medi-Cal health plans. So we get a rate and a contract and then rate range basically increases our rates to what is supposed to be uh, market, which there's an actuarial element to it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's trying to make the public hospital system whole. Okay. Market being closer to a commercial level of reimbursement? Yes, but um, I guess because we come from where we know what that really is, I'm not sure that we get there, but that is the intent. Okay. Is the QIP change fiscal year or also calendar year? I'm sorry, what was that? The QIP change that we've overperformed on anyway, but it's calendar year. QIP is calendar now, yeah. I had a question, um, maybe for Tangerine. The primary care, the CALIM accountabilities for our primary care that are tied to uh, our supplementals there, will that start showing up in the second quarter, the, the, the third quarter of FY2023, which is like this, this these, um, in the first half of the calendar year? Yeah, so uh, it is a little bit challenging that QIP is on a calendar year, mm -hmm. we're on a fiscal year. So, when we develop our budget, we recognize that half of the dollars in any calendar year will be attributed towards one fiscal year and one half another fiscal year. But in terms of the metrics themselves, um, they are adjusted every year. Uh, there are primary care related metrics, you know, that most of them have to do with preventive screening and those types of activities. And in fact, just today, and Felicia attended. We had our um, QIP uh, kickoff for the current program here today in this room. And it was really great to have all of the program team mm -hmm. here to not only celebrate their success of the last year, but prepare for the new metrics that started January 1st. Yeah, okay, good. Because I think the, the, the ambulatory metrics are the ones that because of our shortage in staff and all of that are the ones that we are a little worried about in terms of meeting our budget, right? So uh, I just wanted to know that as you kind of, um, as this dotted line is trending down, we are taking into account some of the challenges within the ambulatory set. So, so in the projection that, that we shared last month, um, we, we looked at what our run rate was and then we looked at what we think we we're going to collect on the supplementals, and, and we basically just forecasted out the rest of the year. Um, and we assume that you know things like the registry are going to continue, you know, high. You know, we didn't, we didn't, you know, we wanted it to be realistic. Um, but I think 
despite all of the up and down, we're going to come really close to the budget, which you know, that's, which is good news. And a lot of it has to do with all of this additional supplemental budget. And we have a dashboard that we track on a monthly basis. So we know what our performance is, and we track the values related to that in the strategic policy. So at any point in time, we have a good sense of our revenue potential. <coughs> Thank you. I have, a question. I have a question, Kim. Sure. Did we apply or did we receive any ARPA funds? We, we did receive ARPA funds. In fact, uh, it was, again, doing it off the top of my head, I think it was $23 million that we did not expect to get at all. It came to us. It was not in our budget, and it uh, definitely helped our performance last year. So that came, that came through the county? Uh, no, it came, um, it didn't come through the county. The county had funds that, you know, they did, they did grants. This came through, uh, through, through I don't know how, through CAPH somehow, uh, it came through GPP. So okay. GPP supplemental, they're, they're add-on to our supplemental dollars. Yeah, GPP okay. is the waiver, the Medi-Cal waiver. That's that's how we. Oh, received. through the state. All right, got it through the state. I remember. Yeah, I didn't know those were ARPA funds. I, I know. I know you showed us, you know, last year and stuff. But I was curious because I know the county's been handing out grants and things like that using their funds. Yeah, we we did talk to the county several times on on you know, maybe we could partner and and I don't know that anything uh, actually ended up playing out, but we were. You know, we were definitely in conversations with, with them about okay. this. Thanks. So this is the uh, revenue slide. And there is a lot of words on here. Um, and maybe we can simplify this based on the, some of the comments that we made today. Um, but our gross revenues are up 7.3%. Um, a lot of it is an inpatient, which is driven by those patient days because it a charge for every patient day at midnight. Um, the outpatient looks like it's really high, but the reality is the budget spread for outpatient, um, the revenue is low. So if you adjusted for that, it wouldn't um, it would be less of a variance than it is here today because our um, outpatient volumes, as we talked about, the surgery were all down this month. Um, the length of stay I mentioned was 6.6, .6, which is higher than it's been. <coughs> And our CMI was actually uh, lower. So normally when your CMI goes down, that's your case mix index, um, your length of stay would also go down and we saw the opposite. So we're really still struggling a lot on length of stay. In regard to the collection ratio at 19.3%, that's actually a really good percentage for us. And it's being driven mostly by timing. So it 1% was the result of uh, payments we got from the county in this month. And you'll see those in the cash collection uh, table in a few minutes. And I just have here, I put this comment um, uh, this day just because if patients don't meet inpatient criteria, we get either a lower rate, which is an admin rate, or we don't get paid at all. We get denied because of medical necessity. So that dilutes our collection ratio. And of course, that's a big concern I have because uh, we don't, you know, we still, we use a ZBA, we look at paid accounts to determine 
what percentage we should um, reflect as revenue. And if that's being diluted because of the longer length of stay, that uh, I could have, be overstating my revenue. So this is something that we keep track of very closely. My next uh, slide here is uh, on the supplementals. And this is where you can see the big pickup for QIP there uh, under supplemental programs, 20.2 million positive variants. There is uh, some offsetting items that I've <coughs> talked about at the top, um, but uh, that was the real uh, reason for such a nice month for us from a financial perspective. And also, if you look year to date, we're over budget by 42.7. So this is a great graphic to explain, you know, all of this additional supplemental money. So the from the waiver on GPP, 4.5 million, that's related to FMAP. We've got Measure A. Uh, we had thought that with a recession pending that we wouldn't see a lot more Measure A money, but people are still spending. And so we're, you know, above budget by 8.5 million year to date. And then QIP is the main driver for the supplements. The rest is like uh, GME, FMAP. Are we, just on the Measure A piece, are we imagining that without stimulus funds and without child tax credits and without all the extra money that's been cash payments to people, are we imagining that that will have now have an impact negatively on Measure A? Are we going to account for that? Or did we already have it so low that everything is above? Well, and we're going to need to talk about that for next year's budget. Um, I think we've all year been seeing, you know, substantial positive variance and so we've just been kind of going with run rates sometimes towards uh the summer months things do slow down we've seen that in a lot of previous years um but for next year's budget we'll have to have a conversation about what we think will happen and are we getting the fqhc rates for the others based on like fast so even though it's not been um it has not been approved or fully inked. We are still getting the FQHC. So what we're getting now is $212, which is based on our existing rate uh, for our FQs, but we now get it for all of those sites. So you'll you'll see when we do the entity financials that the FQs are doing better than budget. So and uh, so it's it's going well. We still are in negotiations with the state. I don't have an update on when we'll get that resolved. But we're thinking that rate will likely go to somewhere between 370 and 4. Well, timeline, do you know? We were thinking we were moving along really well. And then, um, uh, good news and bad news the state agreed to look at our calculation, which is the higher number. And so, what we have done is we have sent all of our files, and, and you got to realize this is from 2012. <laughs> I mean, it's like old and, and you know many, many files. So we have now submitted, they've agreed to accept that data and they're looking at it. So the auditor that was actually here back then is doing the work. So um, he's doing that now. I don't know how long he's going to take. But to me, that it was good that they were willing to look at you know what we were able to provide because we believe our number is the right number. And we're just trying to get to the correct answer, you know. And uh, the number they're, they're using is from flawed data. So we'll see what, what comes out of this. 
So let's see. The next item here is uh, our operating expenses, and now this is where we're seeing, you know, uh, uh, you know a lot of problems. We're 21.5% over, 21.5 million over budget for one month January. Year to date, we're 82.7 million over and 12.1%. So January is particularly worse than we've been running. So um, as I talk about this, I'm going to talk about why January was so bad when, you know, compared to already a, a poor run rate, if you will. So labor costs are on the next slide. Um, purchase services uh, were over 2.7. That is uh, a timing difference with Huron and clinical services. We just paid additional invoices in January for clinical services. If you look, um, year to date, we're only 3.5% off. For materials and supplies, this is ongoing. Um, our patient days are high, and so we need more materials and supplies to take care of all these patients that we didn't have in the budget. Uh, it's higher in January because of lab reagents. We had uh, $400,000 of expense in lab reagents in this month, driving up that variance. And then facilities is also um, negative this month. It's been positive up until now, and that was a few uh, timing one-time items. We had a biomed service contract come up for 400000 that we paid in one month. And we had San Leandro building pair repairs for 200000 And it is winter time, and we did see a big increase in utilities, and I'm sure everybody at home is seeing that. Uh, and January being, you know, winter time, uh, we definitely had a, a, a pickup on the utilities. Could, go, yeah. could this be a moment to talk about the conversation we had around uh, PPE? Um, sure. Uh, so with the end of the public health emergency, um, we're thinking that maybe there is an opportunity to bring down some of the costs for all of the supplies that we're buying, whether it's masks or gowns or, you know, a lot of different things. Um, we had a separate COVID cost center we were using, and we were allowing people to put their one-time costs there so that we wouldn't uh, mess up our true run rate for our expenses. And we're thinking we can stop that, and then we'll need to have a conversation about what should be built back in the budget. So that will be something we'll be looking at for this next year. But the hope is that maybe some of these costs um, can come down because we won't need all of the protection that we needed historically during the pandemic. Yeah, and so I was just contextually because if we can start now, that's what we talked about, really starting to draw down now. <clears throat> and so planning for the next budget year, but also we can start reducing our expenses this year to some extent. Sure. All right, and so this is the uh, labor slide. And uh, labor, this is an ongoing problem. This is all fiscal year, and it goes back to that length of stay, all of those patient days. It's um, higher in January because our patient days were so high in January, 8.1% I mean, over, uh, I said, you know, 10,120 days is a big number for us. <laughs> and our labor rates and overtime have remained high um, due to, of course, all the need for registry. Um, so this month, every single one of the variants is negative. 
So that's driving the higher uh, unfavorable variance. So the salary and wages, we've talked about that every month. It's, you know, our, our rates are much higher now. We've needed to do that to, to pay people better, to retain them. We've, you know, we're doing a lot of efforts in recruiting, some retention payments, a lot of work happening there to, um, you know, stabilize and bring in our own staff. Um, same with physicians, it's the same, exact same situation there. Uh, and then the registry was particularly high in January and we did a lot of catch up with invoices again. So, our plan is to have registry swipe so that we know real time exactly how many hours people are working, how much overtime. It would be on our reports. It would be available to you know the leaders on the floors. They could see today you know exactly what the what the labor costs are. Now what happens is the managers have to go into a special portal and approve time, and sometimes. It takes months before all of those get approved, and you know, not. I uh, I don't know this, but anecdotally, I wonder if you know sometimes they don't even remember who worked and who didn't. I mean, so much time goes by, so we really need to uh, uh, figure that out. When do we expect the registry to be swiping with along with everybody else? So we're going to go live with our new timekeeping system in mid-April, mid to late April. Um, we had originally had the swiping as part of that scope. Um, we had a hiccup because what we need in human resources is a database with the source of truth in it. So we need to have a database that knows everybody who's supposed to be working here. You could use it for badging. You could use it for sending emails, for tracking groups of people. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful thing, but we've got to have Lawson set up for HR so they can be accountable for um, ensuring that that database is always correct. Because you don't want somebody working and not being able to swipe and, and do they terminate, they got to be taken out of the system. So we've got to make sure that they that the system is set up um, to do that. Okay. All right. So. Um, let's see on regard to employee benefits. That, and also retirement, it's the same um, explanation. In the budget, we straight lined it. So we just divided the total estimated cost for the year by 12 and put it in here instead of sorting it based on history, which we will change this year. Uh, so what's happening is a timing difference. We're starting a new calendar year, which then means your FICA starts over, uh, your retirement starts over, and so there's higher costs in the beginning of the year, and then they trickle down at the end of the year. So um, those are timing differences uh, with the budget. So this next slide uh, talks more about the FTE. Uh, since we were over by 300 and uh, 335 FTE, I thought we should spend a little time on where those FTEs are. I've talked about the fact that our patient days were, you know, pretty much an all-time high, and this graph shows that. If you look, this is adjusted patient days, and you can see we've never been higher um, here in January at 5.063. Does everybody see that? Yeah. yeah. 
So I thought that was a good graphic to really understand. And then if you look, our, the bar is also very high for FTE because we needed to you know, take care of those patients. And you'll also look, you'll see the yellow, the, product, the productive is down. And the blue, the non-productive is up and the registry and overtime are up. So we had, um, we had um, fewer productive people than we had planned according to the budget. And we had more people out on PTO. There is good news in this. We now have 4,416 FTE, which is compared to 402,046 in our budget, which means we're actually filling vacancies and hiring our own staff. So it doesn't show here the reduction in registry, but we are actually seeing our own FTE number growth. So, yep. Is that registry FTE based on the invoices we paid for the month? Can you, yes. Can you explain that a little? Sure. Yeah. So um, we we recognize the hours in dollars when we have the information. So uh, as I said, we were doing catch up of invoices. So in January we are showing hours and dollars from a previous month. And we did that in December too. We've been at two months of cleanup now. Uh, this is an ongoing issue. It's always been an issue. The timekeeping system will end that issue. Yes. Yes. And you know, the, the number of FTEs does not equate to the number of traveling bodies. The body count is lower, so to speak. Yeah, this is based on Because hours. people are on PTO and No, because we're paying a lot of invoices in January that, whereas they worked months prior. And so they kind of stack up and we pay them all in one month. And therein lies a high looking FTE count versus how many they're actually in the facility. Yes. And so because of, I figured there'd be a lot of talk about this. We did two extra slides this month. So if you look at January, you can see what's happening. So the 335 variance is at the top, and that's what campus is, is driving it. So for Alameda, there were over 61 FTE, but their um, acute patient days were up 8.3%. They were busy. And if you look at Highland, they were up 5.9%, and they had 145 FTE, um, which would indicate to me catch up, and I can show you why I believe that in just a second. And then John George was really busy. They had 19.7% more days, and they used 53, which probably makes sense, right? So then if you look at the key drivers down here, um, going to Highland, they had 32 additional FTE in the emergency room, although the emergency room volume is down, right? Well, in the... Uh, Next slide, which I'll show in just a minute, you'll see it drops way down. So you know it's a catch-up of invoices, right? And then for uh, uh, for the skilled nursing down there for Fairmont, you know, we now have South Shore patients being cared for um, while the sewer is repaired at Fairmont. So that uh, that 13 there is just a difference, right? Because it's because of the the move. Um, and then over in system overhead, you know, we've got 14 more in HIM, but 
if you look year to date, there's no variance at all. So that obviously has to be invoices. So that's just kind of my way of trying to, to compare January with year to date and also match it up with our additional volume. But we know year to date should be accurate. <laughs> well, if we got all the invoices in, it should be now. Okay, let's continue. All right. Uh, so here's the balance sheet. So this, these are, this is the dashboard of the metrics that I currently present um, in the finance packet. Um, I include days in cash here. I rarely talk about it because we don't have any cash. You know, all this is, it's just money that we've taken from the treasury to pay our payroll and our AP. We ask them, can I have this much money? They give it to us, it comes in our account, and then all of our checks clear and it goes away. So there's no you know, reserves. For um, AR days, we look at gross and net. We're up a little bit this month, and that is primarily due to a little lower collections. So even though January was a long month, our collections were a little lower than average. Um, the due from the third party, that is for government or for supplementals, I should say. And you can see it went way up. Well, that's being driven by that 24.9 million of QIP that we recognized this month. And then due from county is way down because we got the HPAC amendment money in January. They funded it. So we got the 40 million. So now we no longer have that receivable in the books. AP, we talk about once in a while when there's a, a big change there. Generally, it's just timing of the check run. Um, current ratio here to me doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's been something that was asked by the grand jury. So I've left it on here, but to me, because our, our line of credit, our net negative balance, which to me is our, is our cash because it's negative, um, is in the long-term liabilities. And because that's where it is, that's where it's classified by our auditors, this current ratio doesn't make any sense, but I've left it on here. The uh, net position. Um, is improved because we had net income this month. So it improved from 50.5 to 42.2. Our net negative balance, that's the amount on our line of credit is very low at 4 million. It was uh, even positive last year for the first time since I think maybe one other time in the history of the organization. So then my next slide is the days in AR graph. And um, you can see the HB, meaning the hospital <clears throat> AR, actually decreased, which is good. It's what we want to see. And we're also seeing that the outsourced uh, para-rev inventory coming down, and that's the money that's at risk. So we're working that. We're trying to save it. Over on uh, PB, things went the wrong way. They went up in that month. Not a lot, not concerning. But the main reason for the AR is because both HB and PB collections were low in the trend. So here's the collections, and you can see right there in Epic, 56.6 is one of the lower months there. Um, you can also see the big influx of behavioral health money. So that is one of the things that drove our collection ratio. You can see we got 14.8 million uh, in the month, so all the story fits together. And we are doing 12.8% better than last year in our collections. And then this is the uh, NNB forecast. So this is what we estimate what our NNB is going to be. Um, there's not a lot of changes uh, between this month and last month. Um, we did spend a little more capital. Um, 
We're at 9.2 and we're assuming we're gonna spend 10.8. For the next year's projection, since I don't have budget, we just assume 28 million. I don't know what that number is gonna be, but that's what we've assumed going out next year. We also just looked at our current cash flows and made modest changes to them, like a 3% you know, increase in net revenue and a 3% increase in expense, very modest. Um, we will replace it with budget. But what I want to point out, which is keeping me up at night, <laughs> is the fact that that line is getting up very close to our maximum line of credit. And if we get to that point, we won't be able to pay our vendors, right? So we, and we have been in that situation before, not since I've been here, but others have told me what it was like. And I hope that we will never be there again, but we need to make sure that we, uh, this budget process is going to be pretty intense and really going to need to to work hard to make sure that we don't um, uh, drive up our debt. The last slide here in this uh, um, deck is uh, the material items. This kind of helps you understand why there's ups and downs in the, in the NMB forecast. Um, the county likes this too because they can see when the big dollars are going to come and go. So uh, there's really no change this month. It was just a minor change for FMAP. The next section is the entity financial statements. Again, this is a work in process, so I don't usually spend a whole lot of time on this. Um, but I will say that in the month of January, uh, circling back to, uh, to the comments made earlier about the FQ clinic, you can see they're the only one beating budget. So <laughs> um, that's good to see. Also, if you look at January, you can see the collection ratio kind of jumping all over the place. And this is something we got to work on. Um, it's a lot more stable if you go to the year to date. Um, there, it's, it's a lot more consistent, which is what you want to see. But this is really important to us because this alerts us if there's a problem. And we've never been able to see that at that level until we built these statements. So, uh, and on the year to date basis, uh, the FQ is also the only one better than budget. Yep. And if you then what we've done here is we did not, we're looking at contribution margin because to me, that's what's important. We want to look at the collection ratio. We want to make sure people are on budget. Um, the allocation of how we spread measure A dollars or GPP or QIP doesn't really matter. It's system money. And when we do our planning for how we spend capital, we need to make sure that it's balanced across all the entities and that everybody's needs are you know, met as best that we can. So that is the finance presentation. All right, thank you very much. I'm gonna move on to uh, Mr. Fratsky's Chief Operating Officer. Thank you. Can I make one comment about the net negative balance and how impressive that is? to be at $4 million and not like at $100 million. Right. Even though we're still slightly negative compared to where we were a few years ago, yeah. it's right incredible. Yeah, it's a yeah. night and day difference. <laughs> so noted. Can I make a comment also? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry that I, I don't want to be Eeyore here, but I only see dark clouds in the future. I mean, the, the labor costs are a problem. They're clearly a problem. They're clearly driving this. And I'm looking forward to 
seeing what what we do in the next budget because i think kim's right i mean it's um i mean just there, there's one stat when i saw in the presentation where our our budget for registry was i can't remember the number but it was a hundred and something but we're we we've never if that's the consistent monthly we never even got close to that number it, it was always above that and um so obviously we've you know had more demand and we've had but um you know, like I said, it's labor. <laughs> as far as I can tell, it's labor. Well, yeah. I think when we talk about next year's budget, we have to look at that because both on registry and overtime, uh, instead of the sharp improvement, we expected this year we're going the wrong direction. Yep. So what's that going to portend for next year? Even with hiring and higher volume. And we're going to run out, you know, run out of the COVID uh, lifesavers. Yep. By next year, I would imagine. That is the, the, the biggest yeah. And length of stay, you know, yeah, but, but stay. again, if, if, if we're able to go back to business as usual, maybe we can get that length of stay down, which will solve a big part of our problem. But all these things uh, address the bolus of our business. Yeah. That's right. the thing. Yeah. So where we have all the volume and all the costs, and that's where we're having the problem. Okay, sir. Yes, thank you, Trustee Fox. Uh, I think I'm gonna just introduce Richard Espinosa. I think everybody knows Richard, the, the fantastic CAO we have um, overseeing all of our subacute programs. And Richard's gonna provide us today with a report on, on subacute operations. So Richard, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, thank you, Mark, for the kind words and good evening, trustees and attendees. Um, Let's see if I could share my screen or if, here we go. Can you all see my screen? Yes. yes. Perfect, great. Well, thank you for allowing me to present today. Um, I've aligned our post-acute operations under several metrics, one access, quality, experience, CDPH visits, and then workforce. Um, so I'm just gonna jump right on in. So CalAIM, as many of you may be aware, is the um, California Advancing and Innovating Medi-Cal. Uh, Medi-Cal fee-for-service in the post-acute environment is moving uh, the Medi-Cal residents to manage Medi-Cal. So for us, it's our Alameda Alliance partner and our Anthem Blue Cross partner. And so we're moving from DHCS um, managing the Department of Healthcare Services from managing Medi-Cal to the managed Medi-Cal services. So for our post-acute operations in our skilled nursing facilities, um, as of today, um, we have over 70% of our uh, residents who have transitioned, um, which is a pretty strong number. We anticipate by the end of the month being at 100% conversion. Um, and so we will work directly with our managed Medi-Cal providers. And this is um, a move Medi-Cal made to uh, have better equity alignment, ease of process with Medi-Cal services. It's a, it's a much broader program than post-acute, but this is the post-acute piece of the pie. Um, as you may know, or as you all are aware, we moved our South Shore facility to our Fairmont H2 due to a sewer issue, sewer pipeline issue that we were having. Um, the residents are doing well in H2. The work continues at South Shore. Um, the sewer line is uh, on time, on target, um, but we have identified with the work as as 
tends to happen when you're doing construction, some other uh, issues while you're doing the work. And so um, they've identified some water intrusions, um, some roof issues. So there's some discussion of roof replacement versus roof um, repair, if that's possible, that we're investigating. Um, we've been working very closely with the Alameda Hospital District Board to see if um, any insurance on the building um, would be able to help support some of the costs um, for the repair of the facility. Uh, we've been working closely with CDPH and we just recently sent um, information asking for an extension of time in H2. The initial uh, grant was six months, which ends at um, the April 15th. And we know that we're gonna go beyond that. So we've already anticipated the ask um, for additional time in H2. Uh, we're also um, putting together a performa and a facility review to explore the idea of H2 where the residents currently are in South Shore as a potential permanent SNF expansion for more medical complex uh, patients from within the system so that we'd be able to broaden our post-acute footprint, have additional beds, um, and work with our partners at GSA on that building. So a lot of work being done in terms of assisting uh, to grow the program, but also to help with throughput um, for the acute hospitals. Um, the post-acutes have been for the last, I would say three years since COVID been struggling with meeting our uh, budgeted census. And a lot of that revolves around a lot of the federal and state regulations around COVID, removing staff for 10 days. Um, when you're in outbreak status, limiting admissions for a period of time until you understand what the outbreak looks like. Um, however, in January, we have seen um, a dramatic uh, improvement with COVID management with some of the regulations easing as we've been moving towards um, the pandemic ending here. And so we were slightly off uh, in January for our SNFs. We were uh, 42 days off, which is a big improvement to what we have seen um, over the past two, three years. Um, and in February, uh, I'm excited to say since it's March 1st and we have preliminary numbers, we have surpassed our patient day budget by approximately 261 days and have been over um, budget by 9.34 patient days per day. So we will see a very positive, um, favorable uh, move in February. And uh, we also just got notification today that our Park Bridge building, which has been our biggest opportunity for growth um, in terms of recruitment and uh, also utilizing registry in a different way than travelers are utilized. We worked on a contract with a local registry where we can utilize staff here and there. We don't have to um, tie them down to a 13 week contract, but we can say we're gonna, we need someone Saturday night and Monday morning, and that's all you're paying for. By utilizing that contract, we've been able to see the growth and Park Ridge today um, should end uh, with a sense of, of 117 out of a total of 120, which is very dramatic um, improvement for that building. Um, so in January, you'll see we we're off by 42 days. Discharges were ahead of budget. Uh, our average daily census was off by 1.4, but we will see a positive variance in February and our length of stay is down. Um, and we wanna go further um, from that length of stay, uh, which is great uh, for post-acute. Year to date, was there a question? 
Yeah, how, I, I mean, I want you to finish, but I'm so curious how you can perform under budget, under budget, under budget, and also curious about the registry contract, if that's strictly nursing staff or if that's ancillary staff as well. Great question. So the registry that we utilize or that we've contracted with is for RNs, LVNs, and CNAs. So only nursing, which is our biggest um, population in the SNFs for uh, growth senses and for meeting our PPD for patient day volumes and ratios. And then your other question um, was? I mean, it's just, you know, registry, cost, expenses, overrun, and everything here is below budget. It's like magic. Um, I don't know that it's magic. It's hard. With but I think as a system, um, you know, we've had a lot of support to think outside of the box and see what could we do differently? Um, how can we bring registry in faster um, and utilize and using them at a different uh, methodology so that we're really using them as needed in the post-acute than um, what is more traditionally seen on the acute side in terms of travelers. And so, um, you know, I, I'm very thankful to our teams for um, being uh, open-minded to new ideas and new ways of thinking about things to see how we can improve. And, and I think we're seeing the fruits of those labors and those, and those methodologies of thinking outside of the box. Um, so just- question for you, Richard. What's the proportion of our registry that's local versus travelers? Um, so we just um, started with the new uh, registry organization, the local registry. And I think we have about four, to five registry personnel that we're using across the post-acute. And from VIO, um, I think we have in our rehab spaces, which is a little bit different for physical therapy, speech therapy, and occupational therapy, about another four. Um, and so to Mark's point and Kim's point earlier, um, the invoices that were for previous months has thrown off the numbers, but as post-acute as a whole, we just did our monthly operational report on Friday. We have about 11 uh, registries throughout the entire post-acute continuum on a budget of 15, so we're still under budget. Excellent. Sure. Um, again, the, the census for February is really strong. It's going to show um, really strong um, outcomes um, and, and really Park Ridge to be at 117 tonight. Um, we haven't seen that in years and, and, and mostly because of COVID and recruiting and the teams have worked really hard with our recruiting teams. Um, and like I said, just thinking outside of the box on how we can help um, bring in additional staff and help um, support our teams. In our acute rehab in our rehab clinic, um, the ARU continues to do really well. They were uh, 47 days ahead of budget um, they had 42 discharges on a budget of 39. Their average length, their average daily census was 1.5 ahead of budget. Uh, length of stay was under budget, which is great. And, and we do see um, a little bit longer length of stay because we have um, more clinically complex residents that, or patients rather that we're seeing in our acute rehab, but still under budget, which is great. And our occupancy was 87% um, on a budget of 81. So we're also seeing strong performance in our acute rehab. Um, in our preliminary data, the ARU missed budget by 0.01, <laughs> which is 
right on target there. So, um, but all of them are doing really well. And so um, year to date, um, the ARU is ahead of budget by 44 uh, and uh, 350 days ahead of budget from the previous year. Uh, we're below budget uh, by 50 on the ARU, but I think in February, we'll see that number get closer to alignment. Um, and again, the average daily census is ahead of budget. Uh, the length of stays ahead of budget um, and the clinic is ahead of budget as well. And so we have a, a rehab clinic that one of our um, rehab physicians uh, manages half days on Wednesdays. Um, and so he's seeing uh, a lot of these rehab uh, residents who are either recently discharged from the acute setting or the ARU who need continuum of rehab services. Um, and so that number is steadily, steadily climbing. For our rehab therapy across the system, which is our physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, um, you'll see um, at the majority of our sites, we're ahead of budget. So at Highland, 31% uh, ahead for OT, 7% ahead for PT, 19% ahead for speech and audiology. Our ARU had some, that's the majority of our um, negative variances where we had some staff that were off um, sick, um, but we also had some admin day residents in the ARU. So the requirement for the three hours of therapy is a little bit different when you're on admin days, but we, we're looking to see those numbers get back in alignment. But at our outpatient at Fairmont, our Alameda Hospital, all ahead of budget, um, and then San Leandro, OT had a budget and then PT and speech, which is volume driven um, by referrals um, by the physicians. And so really strong outcomes from our uh, rehab teams throughout the system. We'll move to quality. And so um, one thing to be aware of as we're all preparing for drink to come for our Highland buildings. We're also preparing our acute rehab for its CARF certification, the Commission on Accreditation of Rehab Facilities. Um, you know, our facility, just for some history, has had two back-to-back -back three year CARF accreditations, which is the highest accreditation a facility can receive. Um, so we're looking to repeat that and we're looking um, to add spinal cord uh, injuries to our repertoire of uh, certification. Uh, so we have rehab and stroke currently, and now we want to uh, add spinal, spinal cord injury to that. So another subset of rehab that we're doing in our ARU, um, which will also help system-wide seeing uh, those patients and having specialty in that and certification in that. Quick question about the, the spinal cord specialty. <clears throat> How common is that in the area? Like, what will this do to us as a, a marketing strategy and for revenues? That's a great question, um, Trustee Estine. It's uh, CARF is kind of the uh, gold standard, if you will, of uh, acute rehab facilities. That it it gives you the stamp that not only are you meeting the requirements, but you've gone an extra step to become really subject matter experts and specialists in treating these type of diagnoses and specialties. And so um, when we achieve this, it will give us another of the spinal cord injury uh, subject matter expertise within our system um, as a credential of 
um, being a high performer in our rehab unit, um, which just gives us another uh, um, acknowledgement and recognition for the services and the expertise uh, in the rehab teams and the physicians um, response to the types of diagnosis we're seeing in our system. Richard, question. Do we, do we send representatives out to acute care hospitals in the market to um, talk our service up with, with patients and families who need acute rehab? Yeah, great question. We have um, what are called liaisons. And so we have uh, two of them that go out in the community. And so they've expanded their their um, their area. And so we do go to different hospitals. Um, our priority is really to look at our internal referrals so that we can focus on throughput. But we also understand um, that there's a need in our community and other communities um, as far as San Francisco, Sacramento. And so that we're making sure that we're um, receiving referrals from everywhere that we can, but really with a focus on our system referrals first and then augmenting that with uh, community referrals. So we do have um, teams that go out to the hospitals, they share what our services are, they assist with complex patients that might need placement um, so that we're really a resource, not only for our community, but uh, other communities that need this type of service. Richard, um, could you speak to the addition of a physiatrist and the consultation and rounding that is expected at Highland and other places? Sure. Um, we we actually had a meeting today with Dr. Winkle, who is our um, physiatrist physician, our medical director over our acute rehab, um, and with Dr. Tornabene and Mark Fratsky um, and our trauma center, um, we've identified an opportunity to add another physiatrist to our repertoire to assist in the acute hospital settings. Um, it's a requirement or a, rec a high recommendation for trauma hospitals to have a referral um, and patients seen by a physiatrist. Um, and it would also give eyes um, to our patient population in our acute settings um, by a subject matter expert in rehab, a physician who, is a physiatrist, who will be spending time um, at the different acute hospitals, helping with trauma, helping review patients, um, seeing if acute rehab is needed, um, seeing if other services are needed. So we anticipate seeing volume um, growth in the sense of consultation by physiatry at Highland and Alameda Hospital. And so we're um, working with finance uh, to uh, nail down those projections on what those numbers look like, but it will expand again our rehab services and expertise across our system so that our patients are really getting the best care um, possible. Richard, question. Do we, uh, uh, is the pain clinic the, the work that your folks, the, the uh, partnership with the women's uh, clinic, is that going to continue in this coming year? Great question. And so, um, yeah, we've been fortunate enough to collaborate with our physicians on the pelvic pain clinic. And um, we've seen that it was such a need that the clinic at Highland is actually, we're seeing more referrals than we can see at Highland. So we've, we're opening up a second clinic at our Fairmont outpatient, um, which gives us more access um, for these patients to be seen. And so we're growing that program 
um, which is fantastic. We're able to support our physicians. We're able to support our patients um, and really take into account the, the wait time. So rather than just only having it at Highland and, and then now that the volumes are picking up, we're able to expand it to another one of our clinics to have uh, that additional expertise. And, and we, we are helping um, our clinicians with ongoing education and training and certification so that we can really continue to meet the demands of that. So we, we've been very fortunate to work with our physicians group to really help this population. So yes, we will be continuing this and growing it in the upcoming year. Um, so for, for our quality metrics, um, as you can see here, um, for our discharge to communities, we are above budget. Our return to the acutes is below budget. Our discharge to the SNFs is below budget. Uh, Med errors, there have been none. And falls is something that we're working on system-wide. We are below our target, but we always want to do better. Um, we did see one CADI and one um, pressure ulcer for um, the first uh, seven months here, uh, which is not bad. Uh, so the teams really are focusing on quality um, and the quality metrics are, are um, fine-tuned every year as they're part of our contract with LifePoint. So always uh, striving to do better uh, and to um, you know, hit our targets and then retune our targets uh, so that we can fine-tune them and, and really want to be leaders in the industry um, wherever we can be. Uh, for our SNF quality measures, in February, we received our CMS uh, information. Our Alameda sites are overall five stars, uh, five stars in health inspections, five stars in quality measures. We did have a blip with our data um, reporting to staffing. It's called PBJ, our payroll-based journal. And the data was submitted timely, but we normally submit much earlier. So if there are any issues with um, the electronic submission, we have time to correct. And unfortunately, it was all submitted timely, but there was some uh, error in the transmission and we didn't have time to correct timely. It has since been corrected. Uh, so uh, that will change, um, but the staffing is uh, more of an error in data um, that we've submitted. Um, so really high quality marks. And then for uh, Fairmont, their overall is four stars. Uh, two in health inspections, we've done a few self-reports um, that did result in deficiencies and we fine tune those processes. Five stars in quality measures, five stars in staffing. Um, I will share something that Mark Pratsky brought up on Friday during our monthly operational report is that we are, um, you know, compared to freestanding SNFs and we are distinct part SNFs. And so we see a higher level of complexity than other patients. So for example, our Fairmont building has admitted um, over 41 wounds um, on patients and wounds are items that a lot of SNFs will admit, but they want to monitor how many they admit. And But we tend to see a lot of the more clinically complex. And so for these teams to really see five stars in overall and five stars in quality measures um, to be benchmarked against facilities that you see, I, and I'm not taking anything away, they do see complex patients, but we do tend to see some really complex patients really is a testament to the work that they're doing, the, the healing process that they do, and really the care that they, they do with the work that they do. So just wanted to share that. 
In experience, our press gainy for the acute rehab um, overall here was 96.89. Uh, which gave us a 92.13, which put us in the 98 percentile against other hospitals. So really high uh, marks for the acute rehab. They're pretty consistent um, with their press gaining um, results. Um, and uh, they continue to work on areas for improvement. Um, our SNFs and subacute units, we do um, resident and family satisfaction two times a year. And it's because we don't see as much movement as like an acute hospital would see or our acute rehab would see in terms of patient turnover. So a lot of the services or the areas for improvement um, because the patients tend to be there for a longer length of stay, um, we do our surveys twice a year. The results just came back and you can see here for our residents, um, 84.8 for Fairmont, 87.5 for Parkbridge, 83.4 for South Shore. We had two residents in subacute who were able to um, take the survey. One gave us 100% and one was not satisfied, which gave us a 50%. But, but the majority of the residents on that unit, um, because of their capacity, uh, mental capacity issues, the families make their decisions and are working very closely with our physicians and teams the family satisfaction survey was at 100%. Um, I did work with um, the National Research Center who is the third party provider of these surveys. Um, they don't have a current national average, but the national average previously for SNFs was about a 76% uh, would recommend to others. So this would put our facilities ahead of those um, uh, across the nation from previous um, the benchmarks for um, peers um, that had uh, recommend to others. Uh, for CDPH, um, you know, we manage all of our regulatory um, within our post-acute since the regulations are so different and, and um, a lot of self-reporting is happening within our, uh, our walls of our post-acute. We've had three visits uh, and all resulted in what we call negative 2567s, meaning that they did not find any deficient practices um, amongst our teams. Uh, and then lastly, for workforce force is um, kind of what we were discussing earlier about, you know, our focus on reducing overtime, um, providing time off for our teams, um, especially during these last three years, it's been tough um, for post-acutes um, with COVID. And so really looking at recruiting, um, our two largest um, categories are with CNAs and RNs um, across the continuum. And so continue to work with our recruiting teams um, and also supplementing with registry where we can so that we can just make sure that um, one, our residents are getting the best care possible and that we're also um, supporting our teams with time off and, and, and reducing overtime. That concludes my report. So I'm gonna stop sharing and um, happy to take any questions that anyone may have. Well, Richard, thank you very much for that excellent report. And one thing I'll add is, uh, in addition to the CARF uh, certification that we have for our acute rehab and the outstanding Press Ganey, which is patient satisfaction surveys, acute Promising rehab- Promising to the ER, level two stat. Promising to the ER, level two stat. Acute rehab tends to be among the highest margin services in a, in a hospital system. So um, 
it's nice to have a service that's so successful and also seems to have so much uh, upward potential that also is bringing us a lot to the bottom line. And I'm sure when our, you know, entity and uh, reporting gets even more sophisticated, we'll, we'll see that on our reports. So thank you very much. Sure, thank you. And as we head on in the agenda, just as a time check, we have about 40 minutes to go and we've got four 15 minute reports. So my suggestion is if we can trim those reports to 10 minutes, we have a chance to get out close to on time. And with that, I'll turn to Dr. Tornabeni, uh, who will be giving us a follow-up report on a discussion we had in November on, a, on an article that had to do with the kind of uh, outpatient follow-up hospitals are seeing uh, after their after their discharge of inpatient COVID patients. Sure, and I will be able to Thank give you. you lots of time back because <laughs> this is a very brief uh, a very brief follow up. So when we looked at the uh, information, uh, we tried to. I worked with our quality analytics team, and we tried to do a deep dive on can we get um, volume information on patients um, who come to our ambulatory clinics after treatment. Um, whether that or that uh, oral treatment for um, COVID was in the ED or an ambulatory, we were not able to get that. But you know, we wanted to share at least some COVID ambulatory volume here with with all of you. And so, Rana, I don't know if it's possible to just flash up the slide um, because I, I worked with Annette Johnson, who you've heard from um, uh, in our uh, QPSC, um, to take a, a look at our. Um, we looked at diagnosis codes related to COVID in, in ambulatory, um, and we looked at um, uh, basically the total volume of um, patients who present to ambulatory since the beginning of the pandemic with a diagnosis code related to COVID. And then just for a sense of scale, I asked Annette to, to run a run chart on also outpatient visits with a diagnosis of long COVID because I wanted to get a sense of scale between kind of so-called, I'll just call it routine COVID versus uh, uh, patients who might have had significant longer term effects of having COVID-19. And so on the bottom, you can see that, that, the, that the volume very much mirrored the surges of the pandemic. You can just see that through the morphology of the line there on the bottom. But what's interesting to me is as we get more towards the right, so getting into more recent times, that the, that the increases in our ambulatory volume flatten. And that to me is likely representative of the vaccine and the decrease in the burden of illness post-vaccine. In the top, you see there's uh, the numbers are really under, they're, they're very low. I mean, you probably can't, uh, at least on the screen, see that the scale is less than 10, that our numbers of patients with a formal diagnosis of long COVID, long COVID based on diagnosis code is actually quite low. And it doesn't necessarily mirror any sort of um, surge. Um, uh, and as I would expect that, because these would be patients that would be seen in a longitudinal fashion, even irrespective of, of the surges. So. Um, it was, as I said, it was, and as is noted on the slide, it was difficult to obtain discrete information specifically on post-treatment volume, but um, we, uh, this is the information that we wanted to bring back to you today. I wonder if the, uh, those with long COVID uh, 
either had a lot of uh, uh, online and telephone contact with their physicians or Zoom visits with their physicians. I don't know if Zoom visits are counted in outpatient clinic visits. Um, I would uh, I, I would imagine that, you know, that's a good question. I don't know if Annette in, in the data poll um, just had these be in-person visits versus did we add in all of the televisits at the time? Because certainly early in COVID, we, we switched a ton of our visits to being, um, uh, you know, uh, both telephone, more telephone th than video visits. So I suspect that it's included, but I don't know that for certain. Okay. Any questions for Dr. Tornabani? Do we have any stratification data yet on like who's presenting with long COVID? What other, you know, are I'm they sure vaccinated? We can uh, get that. Yeah, we can absolutely get that. I can I can ask Annette to do a, a disaggregation of this data by race and ethnicity, and we can bring it back if you would like. Right, and it could, it could, it could be intersectional, so not simply race, but age, geography, some of the other determinants. So are we seeing pockets that are yeah. we seeing other? Things? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, over the course of the um, over the course of the pandemic, I've intermittently given longer uh, presentations on COVID. So I'd be happy to do that in whichever forum the trustees would like me to. And I can bring um, those different, in, you know, those different um, uh, sections and, and based on um, both inpatient and outpatient, whatever you like, I'm happy to bring that back. Thank you. Just for the sake of getting a fuller understanding of how the long COVID diagnosis is separate from other inflammatory diseases or, you know, what might seem like a comorbidity. How exactly do we classify long COVID? You know, I'm sure there's a national standard, but very yeah. curious how all it's, that's teased Yeah, it's a, it's a series of symptoms that um, come with um, after having COVID and within a certain amount of time, you have um, symptoms like um, brain fog, fatigue, um, some people even experience joint pain or, or, or chronic muscle pain, et cetera. And, and you have a, a constellation of symptoms that comes in a temporal relationship to having had COVID and other diseases have been ruled out. Okay, thank you, Dr. Tornabeni. Thank you. And we're ready to move on to item C2. Uh, a report on the performance initiatives by Kim Miranda. All right, so these are, this is a status report on our performance improvement initiatives. Um, We've been doing these every other month. I think we missed one month of discussing it, but it was posted. We ran out, we ran out of time. So um, we're just getting back on the cycle. Um, as I reported earlier, uh, you know, on some of these significant ones, we're not achieving because, um, you know, COVID is still with us. Staffing shortages are everywhere and rates have gone through the roof. So, um, this is a, is a pretty negative uh, picture here, uh, but we'll go ahead and go through this. 
So the first item there was to reduce overtime. And what we had said we were gonna do is get to a 2.9% level of overtime. We were running 3.9, so that was a 1% uh, reduction and we're actually coming in at 4.7, so quite a bit more overtime. And so the way this works is the first, uh, the middle column there where it says built in the FY23 budget, that's how much we built in for improvement in the budget. The next item is what we've achieved as of now. Then the following column is what we project by June. And then the variance is what we predict the variance will be for the year. So for overtime, and maybe we're being a little generous here, but we're thinking that we're gonna miss the mark by 13.8 million. The next one there is uh, registry. This is based on rates and we think we're gonna miss it by 25.1 million. The uh, next item there is telesitters. That one is not as, as, as significant, but we are uh, not expecting to achieve that. We will miss it by 1.1 million. The payer contracting, we did get our contracts done and we believe we will achieve that one. And even though we have zero achieved year to date, you're expecting in the next five months to get the oh, 3.9? I think we just didn't update it. That's an error in my, in my slide. That zero is not zero. Okay, good. We just didn't know how, how, many, how to measure it. So um, yes, uh, we built 3.9 in, we expect we will get that. Um, the FQHCs, these are running ahead. Um, all of our clinics are now being billed as FQ and we're getting paid and we think we're going to actually beat the budget by 2.2 uh, 2 million. Workers' comp, we've got as yellow. We still have some time on this one. Some of these are still estimates, but uh, we had built in 1.2 and if I just base it on where we are today, we're going to miss it by 2.1. The best revenue cycle, uh, we built in improvement of 6.8. We've already achieved 7.1. So we've already hit that and we think we're gonna beat it by 5.5 million this year. The uh, best care optimization, this is the length of stay initiative. As I said, we're at an all time high at 6.6 .6 for our acute uh, facilities. So what we did here is we just put in that we're not going to achieve what we built in the budget, a negative 12.4. You could say, well, Kim, you know, it's going to be worse than that, but we also get paid in some cases. So rather than, you know, really just trying to you know, come up with a number, we know it's not a good story there. We also know that we've got some funding from, um, from for COVID relief that's offsetting it. So we just said we're not going to get any of what we put into the budget. The best supply chain is green, where you put in 2.9. We believe we are going to get 2.9. The best pharmacy, um, we put in 1.4. We're going to be a little short on that one. Uh, not everything is, uh, is coming in as we planned, but um, definitely uh, the majority of it we're going to achieve. And the medical practice was never started, so it's, it's still sitting on here just because it's always been on there, but we didn't have a target for it. And then the uh, last two were uh, strategic planning items that we knew about when we did the budget. So we built in the bridge clinic. Uh, they wanted to expand into a pilot, which we approved. They're actually overspending. 
So this is something that will that will be coming back to our budget oversight to see if they're getting the revenue to offset it. But at this point, they're going to be over budget by about half a million. And then integrated behavioral health, we wanted to um, increase the amount of visits for the mild to moderate, and we are not seeing that that pick up in, in volume. So um, a point three that we will get. So the the bad news is at the end of the day, we're going to miss it by 48.3, which is, uh, you know, if you look at our projection and, and you look at the way our numbers are going, um, this is, is aligned with our run rate. So um, it does reason check. Pretty grim Yeah. Any questions on that? Well, I mean, I, I would just comment that where concerns length of stay um, and registry and overtime reduction, those improvements are hard to get. Okay, and, I, and maybe we budgeted a little bit too aggressively, um, but just thinking about next year's budget, I mean, to reduce your overtime, like from 4% to 3% of your worked hours might not seem like a lot, but to do it is hard. So, for what it's worth, we'll be more conservative. <laughs> and I, I think of the care optimization as well. And some of these are more adaptive issues than, you know, technical issues of billing. And uh, so it's like mindsets. It's other things that you have to, like, not just um, so culture. And those are sometimes the hardest ones to do. And so the throughput. Um, yeah, and that's why it's just so um, amazing to hear Richard Espinosa is like same scenario, same kind of you know um, context, similar, and still continues to do just so amazing. Yeah. Any questions for Kim? So let's go on to the budget update and guiding principles. All right. So as the first part of our conversation with the trustees. Uh, we want to set guiding principles for um, the budget process. And so what uh, we've historically done is, is brought these here to get feedback from finance committee to make sure people are comfortable with this. And uh, this will sort of guide us through the budget process. So um, had a lot of help from strategy from Jeanette Dong on this one. Um, the ELT, the leadership team, really wanted to tie things back to our long-range strategic plan. And we really, the team felt that health equity, diversity, and inclusion really needs to be, you know, everything needs to be within that, that lens. And so um, this slide, it was meant to do that, to, to, to you know, create 
put the uh, budget uh, steps or processes inside of that that view. Um, so within that, we've got sustainability. Um, we want to uh, use run rate budgeting again, uh, and we want to you know make sure that we've included expenses associated with infectious diseases. Right? There's going to be some ongoing costs. Um, but by using run rate, you know, we can control the process. We don't have to try to scrub out something somebody put in, right? We can, we can manage it. And then, of course, we're going to adjust for known changes. So we want to um, set realistic targets. And, you know, we are going to recognize some of the change. You know, we talked about length of stay. We talked about overtime. We talked about registry, all of those things. And then... Um, we want to utilize the bridge plans for performance improvement. So I think we'll retire the best initiatives and we will come forward with our bridge plans that the team is working on now. Uh, we've got a whole list of items and champions identified and now each champion needs to, you know, make sure it's realistic, we can do it, what steps are. So that's happening internally. Um, so we'll be bringing that back to you as it gets refined and as you know we've got buy-in from our leadership team. Does that mean that QRR is finished? Would that happen? Or is that still under QRR's guidance? Um, Huron was helping us with a few of the items on the performance improvement list, but not everything. Many a lot of them were our own initiatives as well. So I don't know um, I don't know of any new engagements with Huron related to performance improvement. But I, I mean, they've, they've you know, done a great job for us. So, um, you know, it could be that we find other things that they could help us with. Um, so if anybody knows anything different. So. No, they're, they're still involved with care optimization. You know, we just had a meeting with them today on that. Okay. No, I, I think that, you know, your, your answer is correct, but obviously there's care optimization. So I just wanted to clarify with trustee esteem, were you speaking in regards to best only, or are you just saying more globally, are we doing anything else with your own? We're running best and then this internal improvement. Okay, thank you. So yes, the work is winding down as it pertains to best, but we have the other piece that we are still talking to. Okay. So put on a request out for you guys as you do the as you get ready to present the budget in June. Um, besides the numbers, can you address how the plan, the work plan for next year will impact things like patient access and services, hours of clinic operations, you know, benefits to the patient and, and patient's access to higher quality of care, whether that's with imaging, better imaging equipment, uh, better throughput, shorter waiting times, you know, and then heady as well, obviously. So you're obviously making that a key part of the process, but if, all we see is numbers, which we want to see numbers, of course. But if all we see is numbers, then we don't hear what the real impact on people are, and patients are going to be. Maybe with Hetty, it also includes what's what, what's the impact going to be on our employees. I appreciate the ask. Um, you know, we built a strategic plan that has patients at the center, and something that's our intent is that everything we do should be focused on how does it impact our patients? And so I think it's a it's a natural question. It's the right area for us to emphasize, given all the things that we're talking about doing in the budget, what is the 
anticipated impact on those we serve. So, thank you, Jim. Certainly, thank you. And I think, uh, you know, last month we had some discussion about our shortage of primary care physicians was impacting patient uh, patients getting appointments in the clinics. And I think that'd be another thing. I, I, I know that you can't solve a shortage of primary care physicians overnight, and that it may, may take next year or beyond to do that. But I think another, that would be another thing to address. Where do we think we're gonna go with that next year? Are we gonna get closer to where we feel we really wanna be? I think that's a wonderful place for us to start. Certainly Dr. Achilles Warren and the folks at HMG, I think have done a, an amazing job of really trying to change the way we, we you know are able to address those sorts of issues. Um, it's a challenge because we're trying to hire up in a way we've not done in recent memory, but that is what we need to be focusing on is how, are, how is this gonna change our ability to provide care? And even with that ask though, just keep in mind that we are aware that AHMG has done a fantastic job in recruiting and has had challenges in retaining positions as well. So. You know, two steps forward, one step back doesn't work in the long run very well either. But that, with that said, you know, we just want to yes. kind of understand where we're going in the next year uh, and where we might wind up at the end of the year. Thank you. And Chair um, Fox, when you said uh, primary care ambulatory, that is also some of it is outside of AHMG, right? Because it's our ambulatory is a different, and I know. Dr. Tonabene, you will be bringing that to us, and Dr. Mack probably in April, but also not just physicians, but nurse practitioners, PAs, and others, like the whole cadre of folks who will be doing the primary work. Thank you. So uh, we also want to make sure that we consider the long-range strategic plan. We have lots and lots of goals there, and we want to make sure that uh, we've considered those in the budget process. And then probably, you know, near and dear to this committee's um, part is uh, we need a budget target. So what we've got here is that our target would be um, uh, enough EBITDA or cash flow to cover our capital expenditures and not increase our debt. So that's what we were putting forward for this committee for consideration. Um, maybe we come back to that after I finish the slide. Uh, in regard to external factors, um, you know, if there's new policies or new programs, you know, we talked about our stroke certification. Uh, we also need to look at our CDM and price, uh, where our price CDM is compared to market. So there's external factors that we'll layer in. And then, of course, we always want to improve. So there's going to be bridge plans and there's going to be uh, performance improvement expected. And a lot of work is being done organizationally and culturally by our COO with his operating review meetings and really making sure people understand their, their budget and are accountable to it. So I don't know, uh, Trustee Fox, if you want to talk about our EBITDA target for the budget process. Sure. So from our perspective, uh, we felt like we shouldn't go into debt, that we should try to maintain um, um, the progress we've made towards eliminating our deficit. We are still in a deficit position today. 
So the idea was that we want to someday get out of that deficit position and we don't want to go into debt for operations. So that was kind of the thought behind that start. Any thoughts by the committee? Excellent guiding principle. Thank you. Well, okay. So my thought on that is as well, not losing money helps prevent going into debt. But not knowing how much you think we're going to need in the way of capital expenditures. Um, you know, if we have $30 million in capital expenditures, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that $30 million net income is a realistic goal in given the environment. Um, because you know, some of these supplementals that are that are saving us this year, getting us within four or five thousand, four to five million, four or five million dollars of budget, aren't going to be there next year. And so next year, if we have a thirty-five or forty million dollar bottom line goal, and we don't have the same level of, of a bump up from these supplementals, and we still have some of the unfavorable environmental situations we're dealing with, which are the ones we've been talking about all night. So we don't have to reiterate what they are, but you know what they are. We might find ourselves having a tough time making a $35 million goal. So it's hard. I, for me personally, it's hard to say that, that a goal at that level is, is, is realistic until you guys run the numbers yeah. and don't stretch, stretch things so far to make that goal that it becomes an unrealistic yeah. budget. I, if I could comment, Kim, I I, uh, I agree with that, and I think uh, when our when we see our capital budget, and then we look back two to three years and see how much capital we've actually spent, um, it may be where that capital expenditure gets pared back. Um, subsequently, then that margin is less. Um, so we have to go through this process to understand that. Um, but we haven't spent our capital dollars every year. And we've made some great changes. In, you know, a $30 million capital budget is a fair amount. I mean, some of those capital, in our quality reports, we heard about you know, sound x-ray machines and, yes. and you know, radiology equipment. And so the need yeah. for the spending that has been deferred is very yeah. evident. Only the hospital and seismic concerns, you know, notwithstanding, that's extreme. But yeah. you know, the capital improvements are still quite yeah. relevant and necessary. Yeah, and I think we may have to consider the proportion of emergency capital versus non-emergency capital, because emergency capital with our old facilities is leading the way, frankly, this year in our capital budget. And you know. We're going to get that behind us at some point, but we aren't there yet. So I think there has to be a discussion about the allocation of, of real capital needs versus emergency capital needs. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It hasn't been broken down like that in the past. It, it, we have, but it's been like $30 million budget. We set aside $4 million for emergency capital. How much have we spent? All of that. We will be spending all of that and more, but we haven't spent the $26 million or the other side of the capital equation. 
And that's not just cost savings that you can place elsewhere. That's actually absorbed by other losses. Yeah. That's the problem with not having cash. Yeah. I don't know if that gives you guidance that you were looking for. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. It, it, you, you remember the slide I showed you next year where we're already getting close to that right. line because of timing. Right. So we're really going to have to think through this. But we, from our perspective, we know we're going to be at a high point. Yes, there's going to be supplementals that are going to bring it down towards the end of the year. But you know, we we you know we have our commitment with the county not to you know, yeah, see right, that. And Trustee Fox, one last comment: the board of supervisors just approved twenty-seven million dollars for us in infrastructure work um, on their campuses, John George, Fairmont, and Highland, which is fantastic. That's going to help. But is that money going to go against the NNB? Um, I don't think it does. No. no All right. So well, that's great. That's it's, great. Yep. It's the capital cost. It's the money that we got from our uh, our cost reimbursement that that we paid over to the county. The county has been working okay. with uh, um, Mark Frasky, and they've developed a list of capital, which we'll need to build into our budget so we can show that we'll be able to use those funds. So it's a, it's something that. This organization has been looking for for many, many years. This is this, this, this is when I first got here. They, yeah. well, people remember, yeah. yes, yeah. that you know there was this log jam and nothing, you know, nothing was happening. And now it's it's been correct. Well, we can also get some so cash off the balance sheet, year, right? right? We can get the cash off the balance sheet from money that the county owes us, or reducing receivables, or philanthropy. Where's Preston? He's working on it. We had a discussion, uh, and, and I think it's almost a year ago that uh, Preston was here uh, with a three-year, uh, three-year proposal, and you know maybe sometime this spring he'll come back and update us on that. Yeah. And I'm sure that you're talking to him about what we can expect from the foundation next year, and that that money. Is just as powerful an offsetting debt as reducing receivables, right? Uh, or maybe it, it's even better. Yeah. And that's why I came. I like that that if you prefigure from that, if, you, if that is your, you know, goal, that no debt, and we will meet our capital, like because, like you said, the emergency, and then some of it is the efforts, then you kind of work back from it and right. plan for that. When is the county expected to finish that process? Because um, that's been we, a conversation for a while. Yeah, so we expect them in um, March, this, this, this month. This month they, the nice thing about it, too, is they're hiring their contractors, Swinner, to, to manage all the projects for us. So we'll have no expense around project management. That's great. And they're going to pay for it directly out of the fund. So there's no passing of this nice. money back and forth. So, great. so it's just a beautiful thing. And we expect, Swinerton's already sent me messages about getting a steering group together here. So we're going to be starting it up in March. Right. When the low-hanging fruit work will start, I'm not sure yet. Yeah. Okay. That's really exciting. So we'll have control, even though they'll be... Yes. Doing all the yes, because we mutually identified the projects and we've all agreed to them. Exciting. So what will happen is they'll, it'll go on the county's books. They'll own the assets and it has to meet their capitalization rules. But if it does meet their capitalization rules, we can put it on our cost report and get another more reimbursement back. So it keeps oh, going. Right. 
Right? <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to explain that, but that's exciting. <laughs> So this is the uh, the budget process here. I'm not going to read this to you, but basically, uh, right now we're, we've got you know a whole lot of work going on, just building our run rate and you know making sure that our volumes and our labor standards are done, estimating supplemental funds. Um, this month and in March, um, the budget oversight committee um, will start uh, making sure we're going to get to goals. So they're going to have to have some you know some once they get the where what the preliminary um, financials look like, they're going to have to start saying, we're going to need to massage things because we don't want to send out a budget that is not viable to the management team to review. Otherwise, we're just going to, everything will just implode. Right. So the, the, this will be a tough month for Budget Oversight Committee. And then we will send it out to all the managers, basically not to build a budget, but to proofread it in essence, because it's run rate, right? And if they want something new or different, it has to go through a different process. So this is, um, that's how we control it. Uh, so they'll need to do their 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 work and review and make sure we didn't miss anything. And they'll give their feedback to us. And then we will, in the meantime, be looking at new programs, um, like, like the recruitment for the physicians is one of them. We're looking at every physician that was recruited what is their target to bring in revenue, right? We need to, we need to um, figure that out, make sure those volumes are built in the budget so that we don't just have an increase of expense that we can't cover. So that's one of the, an example. And then we will uh, pull together a presentation and then we'll come back to you the first week of June uh, for your consideration. We will do a check-in with you guys, probably either April or May, whichever works best on our agenda planning. To let you know how we're doing and you know what it looks like and what you know what's what's working well, what's not, you know, if we need any additional guidance from all of you. Great. And we might Thank have you. three opportunities in April because we have the finance committee, we have the full meeting, and we might have a, a retreat yeah. as well. So <laughs> you'll get well, lots of time to talk all right, we're getting close, everybody. So please, let's get recentered here. Uh, we uh, are down to the last item on the agenda, item D, D1, actually, the proposal with Continuant Technologies. Uh, and Mark, Amy is going to present that. <clears throat> Take yes. Away. Yes. Thank you. Uh, thank you, trustees, uh, on this. Yes. Yeah, so the uh, continuity um, contract is actually a, is a vendor we've been working with since 2019. We're needing to increase our spend with them. Um, you may or may not be aware, but we have a very old um, phone system still in the organization and the via system. It's actually beyond vendor uh, end of life and support. Um, a number of years before I started with the organization, a, a project was started to move us over to uh, Cisco uh, for voice, which is frankly state of the art. That project was never completed, and we're wanting to complete that project and get the entire migration uh, done at this point. One of the big um, components that this will give us is it'll give us a really um, uh, a lot of new technology into our call centers. And that's an area that we've really been lacking in up to this point, uh, the ability to really manage the call centers, 
you'll see how many calls we have in queue to be able to do, do knowledge-based uh, routing, um, the language-based routing, uh, and a lot of the other quality metrics. And you know, then basic tools such as uh, being able to give a notice that uh, you know your 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 wait time is expected to be thirty minutes. If say, if you want, you can leave a phone number. We'll call you back. Keep your place in line. You know, those sorts of things that we we all experience and take for granted with other call centers. We just don't have the tools to do that today. So that that would be a part of the um, reason for this replacement. But frankly, it's also just a business continuity uh, need for us. This system is way beyond um, uh, you know, it's, its useful life and needs to be replaced. So I have a breakdown here, and I don't know if that's uh, meaningful to the um, uh, to the trustees. But you know, this is a combination of hardware, uh, professional services, li subscription licensing, um, which is you know, something that's uh, very common now in our industry. Well, and that's actually the largest amount of uh, dollars. It's, so it makes up about a million and a half dollars of the subscriptions that we're going to be paying um, to con uh, Continuant uh, that goes then over to Cisco. So it's really Cisco licensing that we're doing in there. Mark, question. Does this project include upgrading the phones in the patient rooms as well? So good question. It provides the um, framework on the back end at this particular contract. We intentionally pulled the phones out of this contract because we were able to get the phones through another vendor at a cheaper price. And so it does not actually include those specific phones, but it would replace the entire back end. So any phones that we put in a, into the patient rooms will be running off of this back end. What 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 is the state of our patient phones in the rooms right now? I know someplace not here, but other hospitals, some some of the patient phone capabilities are abysmal and they're like 1980s. And hopefully we're a little bit better off than that. Yeah, you know, truthfully uh, on that, our that is not my primary reason for doing the replacement here. So our phones in the rooms are working adequately. Um, a couple of comments on that. One of them is, and not just at Alameda or at uh, Alameda Health System, but um, phones in patient rooms, there's a very high theft of those. I've had that when I was at UCSD at Stanford. It, it really, uh, for whatever reason, when a patient leaves the room, they oftentimes think that the phone goes with them. And uh, so you tend to put in the cheapest phones you can. I'm not, I'm not really talking about the phone console. I'm talking about the capabilities oh. that, that our patients have to make external calls without going through an operator and stuff like that. We, we have that capability today with the existing system, and we would obviously maintain that uh, that capability within the system. Okay, so I, 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 maybe the main question is, are, are patient phones a source of irritation or, and dissatisfaction, or are we okay with our patient phones? We I don't recall any comments in patient SAT surveys okay. about our phones. Okay. Yeah, and I was going to say the same. I, you know, it's not it's not a uh, area that's of uh, of uh, significant pain okay. Good. Uh, for us. I'm glad we're not one of those organizations. <clears throat> will our calls me, be me too. Will our calls be going over the internet with this new system? So this uh, this system does um, uh, support um, uh, um, IP telephony. In fact, that's the, what the entire system is based on. We'll still be using traditional landlines going out from uh, the from the organization, but it does support two things that'll be important for us. One of them is our rover deployment. We actually did our um, pilot site um, a couple of days ago. We went live in the emergency department, which we're very excited about. Uh, that gives us handheld capabilities for our nurses. It also gives them dialing off of their phone itself. And we did not deploy the dialing uh, piece yet, but part of that will be 
uh, encapsulated with this upgrade uh, that we're doing with the Cisco phone. So we'll do that. And then it also will help us with our remote work um, uh, um, folks that are doing remote work because their voice we can actually send across the internet. How many FTEs do we have across the system in PBX? Anybody know? Yeah, it's about 30, I think. Will this new system help us reduce the number of FTEs? So it, um, over time, it will give us the capability to be able to actually centralize our PBX if we want to. There's some definite pluses to that. And I know Mark Fratsky and some of the others have looked at that. There's frankly a few cons to it as well, because it, it, several of our sites, the PBX operators also do other work, um, uh, life safety around like the fire alarm system and some of the security stuff. So it's it'll give us the technical capability to do it, but there is some operational um, impact that we'd have to look at at the various sites before we just set a blanket yes. Okay. But it's something if we got into a real pinch that might help us. A absolutely. If we had some sort of a crisis um, going on, um, you, know, uh, it, it, you know, with uh, some sort of a natural disaster, et cetera, we'd be able to route um, uh, calls around much better than we can today, because really okay. today we can't do that. Okay. Any other questions for Mark? No, those are really great questions. Can we hear a, a, a motion if the committee so desires? Um, if, just to clarify, it looks like this is a, a short-term contract. This is like 12 months just for switching out the old phones into the new ones, and then they're finished with us. Yeah, so uh, good, good question, Trustee Esteen. So the entire contracts, um, uh, 2.2 million loosely, 2.2 million loosely uh, there. The subscription, which is the five-year piece, uh, 1.4 million, that's something that we will continue to pay um, to continuity each year. So that's, uh, I'd have to do the math, uh, but what, $300,000 a year uh, that we're paying to them each year that goes for the subscriptions to be able to use the phone system. But the hardware is a one-time purchase. The professional services is a, like you said, a short-term uh, engagement for us. The um, ongoing manufacturer support, obviously, is for the life of the yoga system we pay. Um, over the uh, period of uh, the contract. I'll move this, uh, that we approve this contract. Second. Trustee Steen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Splendoria. Aye. Motion passes. Thank you all, appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Uh, we'll come to the end of our agenda. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, unless there's anything else for the good of the order, we'll call the meeting adjourned. Thank you. Or adjourned. Thank you. Yes, he does. Everybody, get it together. <laughs> <laughs>